Hi everyone, this is Randy, one of your favorite hosts from Stones, Bones, and Shadows podcast. I am popping in today to share some exciting news that we are getting ready to launch our Patreon. If you want monthly bonus episodes, member Q&As, our own Tapophile book club discussions, and yes, even the occasional pet photo, let's just say we will have you buried in extra content, pun intended. Make sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, Stones, Bones, and Shadows podcast. Podcast.com for more details as we approach the month of April for how to join in on all of the action. Hope to connect with all of you soon. Have you ever wondered if you would be remembered when you were gone? Would the things you have done throughout your life leave a lasting legacy behind? And what would that be? In 1927, a woman passes away after a long battle with breast cancer. She has no husband, no children of her own. And yet, before women in the U.S. even had the right to vote, she sparked a worldwide movement, an organization that still today serves millions of girls all over the United States and throughout the world. What lies beneath? Juliet Gordon Lowe, founder of the Girl Scouts. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and Taffophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, I've got Randy here co-hosting. Hi, Randy. Hello. It's good to have you back. I'm excited to be back, as always, and I'm happy to be here for Women's History Month. I think this will be a great story to really highlight this month. It really is. I... Ran into her in Savannah, Georgia, and we toured the Andrew Lowe house, and it's where Juliet Gordon Lowe lived. And, of course, there are tours and signs, and you just see the name Juliet Gordon Lowe all over the place in Savannah. She was born and raised there, and they are very proud of this native daughter of theirs. And as I learned about her story, I understood why they were so proud. We also, of course, went to find her at Laurel Grove North Cemetery. And this cemetery is really nice. And there are so many cool old stones and sculptures and mausoleums. But one thing that I loved about it is it also had more of the wrought iron fences around the family plots than I think anywhere I have ever been to. I love the wrought iron stuff. Oh, I always too. like taking pictures of them. And you see it, I feel like, in a lot of Western cemeteries, like really old, more remote cemeteries. But that's always fun to find. Yeah, and they were large, like not just around the plots themselves, like one little grave plot. We see that a lot, too. But this would be around the entire, like, 
you know, 10 by 10 foot plot or 15, you know, whatever they are. And they were just all so unique. It was like each family kind of had their own pattern and they would have a different patina and different finials, simple ones, really ornate ones. And the gates themselves were all really decorative. Some of them had angels, some of them just kind of floral motif or vines. They just were amazing. I was just enthralled with all of the gates and yeah. the iron fences. Laurel Grove North Cemetery, it's located on the west side of Savannah on a portion of the former Springfield Plantation. Named after the native laurel trees which once inhabited the site, the cemetery was developed in 1850 as the older cemeteries approached capacity. The need for more burial plots was the main reason for making a new cemetery, but their concepts are changing as to how to build healthy cities and keep them free from disease. You know, it's almost been too long since we brought up yellow fever, so <laughs> I'm sure, you know, that has exactly. something to do with here, but... We were on a roll there for a while. Yeah, we were doing so good. <laughs> uh, but also, we've seen that several times where the original cemetery, you know, starts to overflow with some of these events. And in our New mm -hmm. Orleans episodes, we talked about that a lot, and it's definitely a common theme. Totally. I'm almost afraid to bring up our yellow fever again, but there we go. Right. And obviously, it is there. It's that part of history that we see again. And you know, tied to that, people really didn't understand the causes of the diseases like we've discussed and mm -hmm. we're just trying to figure figure it all out. Exactly. So part of this figuring it out, by the mid-century, they started to believe that the wet rice plantation culture that surrounded much of the city, um, they kind of targeted that as a source of disease. And they really believed that they produced this dangerous miasma. Remember in Yellow Fever episode, we talked about how they believe these miasmas, you know, are bad air. Right. Yeah, the vapor and the just the air around certain things. Exactly. Now, wet rice plantation, is that the crop that they're growing? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I didn't realize they grew rice. I didn't either until I went there. <laughs> okay. You think of the South and you just think cotton, right? Right. Yeah, cotton, even tobacco, maybe, stuff like that, but... Right, but I guess in that area when we went to Savannah and Charleston, that a lot of their biggest crops were rice. And so they had like those rice paddy fields that are a foot deep of water, and then you think about the source of yellow fever. Um, mosquitoes. Our good old friend, the mosquito. And that had to contribute, right? Just having stagnant, they were onto something is what I'm saying. Right, so it might not have been the miasma, but it still is kind of linked. I think so too. And so they were starting to figure out that somehow people around these fields or something had more of the illnesses that we now know were caused by mosquitoes. So I think that, so not so much the air, but definitely those little buggers, the mosquitoes. And so even though they still didn't totally understand germs and 
clean drinking water conditions. They were trying the best they could. And so as part of that broader effort to stop this form of agriculture, the city purchased the Springfield Plantation and that lays to Savannah's southwest there. The location of Savannah's old cemeteries reflect the former practice of burying people in graveyards near the town. And you see this all over the world. Mm -hmm. We've discussed that a few times, kind of that centralized location for the cemetery. Mm -hmm. But as time went by, that was thought to be unhealthy. People thought that these miasmas could come up from graves in the nearby cemeteries and sicken the residents nearby. So they started building larger cemeteries kind of away and outside the city limits. And the new Springfield site seemed a good location for Savannah's new cemetery. Laurel Grove started selling cemetery lots, and they actually sold out during the Victorian era. And so that's why this park-like cemetery probably has the highest concentration of Victorian period cemetery architecture in the southeast. They were all sold and used during that time. And so it really is just this time capsule of funerary art, and it's really incredible. The north side is 67 acres, and there's so much to see. Now today we're just talking about that north side because that is where Juliet Lowe is buried, but there's also a south side to the cemetery. And when they laid out the cemetery, it was split with the larger northern portion designated for white burials, and the smaller southern portion was for African Americans, and most of which who were at that time enslaved. The south side part of the cemetery is separated now by a large highway that was later put there, not during that time, but in later years. We've heard this story before, right? Yes. And it was reserved for black slaves and then freed men. And so anyway, just mentioning that, we'll totally be coming back to the south side of Laurel Grove on another day because it is huge and deserves its own story and episode. Laurel Grove would serve as the main burial place for Savannah's deceased for the rest of the 19th century, although some people, primarily those with wealth, chose to be buried instead in the more expensive lots in the privately operated Bonaventure, which we love Bonaventure, and it is amazing as well. Right. Um, And it's just located several miles east of the city. Laurel Grove was a cheaper and more convenient alternative. And all classes of people with their different grave and memorial styles are represented here, from grand monuments designed by architects of national note to the more humble headstones of Savannah's ordinary everyday citizens. Exactly. So you have all walks of life in Laurel Grove, and I really appreciate that and like that about it. In 1907, The city of Savannah also bought Bonaventure Cemetery as a replacement for the by then full white section of Laurel Grove North. And so then more of everyday people started being buried in Bonaventure as well. Laurel Grove South remained in active use throughout the 20th century because it wasn't full at that time. And while many cemeteries of the enslaved and freedmen are left without much in the way of headstones and sculpture. I was so happy to see so many stones and so much beauty and care of this cemetery. So 
But then again, it has been in use for many years. There's many generations that are buried there. But again, we'll go back to that another day, but just wanted to mention the other side of the cemetery. It was laid out as part of a park cemetery. Park cemeteries doubled as city parks, visited by residents for picnics and recreation, in much the same way as an in-town park such as Savannah's Forsyth Park would be used, as well as to remember the dead. Which is just kind of interesting in general. Right. Like, first of all, that concept is a little strange just on its own. Like, we don't think of a cemetery as a place necessarily to recreate and play, but also they were worried about health and concerned about, you know, health and safety surrounding these cemeteries, but then they like made them into parts. I know, totally. I mean, make up your mind. It's a little counterintuitive, yeah. I mean, maybe they're like, oh, well, the miasma, it's just a small dose and then it'll, it'll be okay. At least it's not, not living next door to it. So I don't really understand like the idea we have to move these cemeteries to the outside of town, but then, oh yeah, let's go and make it a recreational park. I don't get it. Right. Yeah, maybe it is. Like, if you just visit a cemetery, there's not, you know, as much risk. But if you're living by it, near it, all that's the all time, I can figure. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Laurel Grove was landscaped and planted out in trees and shrubs. The lots and gravestones laid out amidst abundant greenery and winding streets. Today, it's still a beautiful cemetery with all the moss-hung live oaks, blooming crepe myrtles, and azaleas to add to all of its southern charm. One of the reasons that I really loved Laurel Grove, like I said, is all the monuments. There are obelisks, angel statues, the little lambs, ornate headstones, just all of the things that you picture in a Victorian cemetery. A section that is also for the Confederate dead, and we found men that died in all the big battles. There was a lot of lot of history there. One of the notable people that is buried there goes perfect with last week's episode about the women nurses during wartime. Her name was Phoebe Yates Pember. She was born to a wealthy Jewish family in Charleston and was best known for her influential role in the hospital care of soldiers in the Civil War. Pember was granted control of the Chimborazo Hospital in Richmond, Virginia as part of a move to place women in such positions so as to free up men for the battlefield. She later also published a widely read account of her work during the war. So this is also where you found James Lord Pierpont, right? Yes, and for those that you don't know, he wrote our holiday classic Jingle Bells, and his story is pretty crazy as well. And We did an episode on him, and it's called One Horse Open Sleigh, if you want to go find that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. That was all things I didn't know about the classic song, so. Exactly, and then um, if you missed it, Dallin and I and a couple others join in to sing Jingle Bells. <laughs> yes, it's very cute. I really enjoyed it. Fun episode. So someone else beloved in Savannah is their waving girl. There is a sculpture of her out on the Savannah Riverside Moral Park. 
that was placed in 1972 to her memory. It's of a girl waving a handkerchief with a dog sitting there beside her. Her name was Florence Martis, or the Waving Girl, as she is popularly known. She was born in Savannah in 1868. Martis lived much of her life on the isolated Elba Island in the channel of the Savannah River, where her father and later her brother, both named George, were employed as lighthouse keepers. Florence began one day to wave at the passing ships, and she just kept doing it, making it a habit. In fact, she greeted each and every ship that sailed up the river for 44 years. And now you know why she got the nickname The Waving Girl. Isn't she cute? Just That's so cute. Maybe from her loneliness. You know, there weren't very many women there, and she was lonely, and so she decided to go wave to all the people that sailed by. I also feel like all the sailors, all the ships probably really enjoyed that, just seeing this kind of like bright, cheery girl and woman. Yes, beautiful young girl out there waving at them. Yes. So when her brother George Jr. retired, they both left the island. Florence died in 1943, and she's buried beside her brother who had died three years previously. The marker over their graves depicting the lighthouse in which they lived commemorates George's role as lighthouse keeper and Florence's as Savannah's waving girl. There's also the grave of Charles Green, who lived from 1809 to 1881. And Charles Green was born in a small English town near Birmingham. And he moved to Savannah in 1833 at the age of 26. He soon rose within the city's social and business ranks through his association with the cotton merchant Andrew Lowe, which, yes, becomes the husband of our Juliet that we're talking about today. So interesting tie. By 1850, he was one of the richest men in Savannah, constructing his home, the Green Meldrum House on Madison Square that year. This house is really cool. It's one of the finest examples of Gothic revival architecture in the South. Oh, wow. In December 1864, upon the invitation of Mr. Green, General William Tecumseh Sherman used the house as his headquarters when the Federal Army occupied Savannah during the Civil War. It was at this time that General Sherman sent his famous telegram to President Lincoln, offering him the city of Savannah as a Christmas gift. The house was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1976 by the United States Department of the Interior. In 1943, the owner sold the house to adjacent St. John's Church. The house now serves as St. John's Parish House. It's very beautiful. We walked around it, took photos. You just realize as you're there, there's just so much history in Savannah. Every corner you turn, there's something new. There's plaques and signs saying, this happened here, these people were here, this battle happened here. And just like this place, we kept bumping into historic places of Juliet Gordon Lowe. And we saw her birthplace, which is now the headquarters of the Girl Scouts. And we saw the home she shared with her husband, Andrew Lowe. So let's dive into her story. 
Born Juliet McGill Kinsey Gordon on October 31, 1860 in Savannah, Georgia. Yet she was born on Halloween. <laughs> yeah. She was called Daisy by those close to her. She was the second of six children and her parents were Eleanor Kinsey Gordon of Chicago and William Gordon of Savannah. Daisy was raised in a prominent Savannah family that believed in community service, education, and being good neighbors. They also enslaved people to work in their household and businesses. So good with community service and being good neighbors, but still felt it was cool to slave, enslave people. Mental gymnastics required there. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Mental gymnastics required. This is like a little off topic, but one of my favorite like old lady things. This is from Porter's grandma and she's a sassy lady and we just <laughs> love her. But she had um, posted on Facebook because she is hip enough to be on Facebook. That's some right. comment, you know, on some article that she disagreed with or whatever she said. Somebody out here is about to pull a muscle with how high they're jumping to conclusions or like something like that. With all these jumping to conclusions, somebody's about to pull a muscle. That's great. She has several versions of that like that have to do with the mental gymnastics involved. Somebody's about to pull a muscle. It's just funny. But yes. That's good. When the Civil War began in 1861, she was just one year old and her father fought for the Confederacy. Her mother's Illinois relatives fought for the United States, so many families were like this and, and split you know, during the Civil War. Yeah, it just feels crazy that, let's see, your dad's family is on this side and your mom's side is fighting for this side. Right. Man, it was rough. When Juliet, uh, even though she was nicknamed Daisy, we're going to keep it simple, just keep referring to her by her given name, Juliet. But when she was four years old, the end of the Civil War came and brought freedom for enslaved people in the United States. And so she really probably didn't remember much of that time of having enslaved serving, you know, in her household. Another interesting little thing is I read that General Sherman came to visit her mother, which, isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah, they run in the same circles there. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. General Sherman came to visit her mother and gave little Juliet a packet of sugar and that this was the first time she'd ever tasted sugar. Oh, wow. What a memory. Yeah, you forget. We take those things for granted now. It was delicacy. Yeah, what was the first time you ever tasted sugar, Randy? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. One years old, probably. Yeah. Juliet was a sensitive, curious, and adventurous girl known for her sense of humor, creativity, and concern for others. She was very interested in animals, nature, sports, and the arts. Juliet's childhood was marked by frequent illnesses, including meningitis, malaria, and chronic ear infections. Poor little thing. That sounds rough. And her summers were spent in North Georgia with her brothers and sisters and many cousins swimming in the Etowah River, climbing trees and playing make-believe. Juliet was often the ringleader for their adventures. 
She made up games, started a service club with her friends, and even wrote and directed plays that she performed with her siblings and cousins. I know some girls that used to do this. Yeah, it sounds very similar to what we did as kids, for sure. <laughs> you guys love that. <laughs> Gordon's parents encouraged her and her five siblings to be loyal, dutiful, and respectful of others, traits that would later become central to the Girl Scouts. She grew up serving and helping others. She even helped her mother organize and serve in a hospital in the Spanish-American War. And although her upbringing was typical of a girl of her station, those who knew Juliet would not describe her as a typical girl. <laughs> her brother Arthur said that she was a brilliant eccentric. <laughs> and I love that. And she had a great love for pets, especially exotic birds and could often be seen with one perched on her shoulder. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> I love it. She had a parrot named Polly Poons. Polly Poons? Polly the parrot. Classic. I know. Is that funny? <laughs> and from childhood, Juliet was very athletic, was an expert swimmer, and as a young girl, saved a toddler who had fallen into a stream. So heroic and brave. <laughs> Let's add that to her descriptors. Yes, exactly. She was a horseback rider, a fisherwoman, and loved tennis and curling. <laughs> and one of her very favorite skills was standing on her head, which she would famously do later at the national headquarters of the Girl Scouts to show off the new uniform shoes. <laughs> and she just loved to entertain her nieces and nephews this way. Doesn't she just sound so fun? She does. She was so adventurous. And she kind of reminds me in a way of my mom. Yes. Someone that is just fun and outdoorsy, full of life and adventure and silliness. Don't take themselves too seriously, but can do all the outdoor things, fishing. And, and my mom, of course, can identify every plant and... Yes tree and flower that there is in the forest but I just it's like it kind of as I read more about her I was like she is so fun and then I was like she sounds just like my mom <laughs> she really does and I, I love that there are traits that sometimes people would think contradict one another like oh you're mm -hmm. you're artsy and in you know into music and art but you're also you know can fish and hike and do yeah strong kind of acrobatic and athletic things and I just love mm -hmm. women that show you know you don't have to be placed in in a box you can learn and be a lifelong learner of many different things and yes and trades and skills I just love that and that's kind of something that yes we believe and we love yes that's, that is so us like learn things try things don't take yourself too seriously if you want to try it Go do it. Yep. And so I just I just thought she was such a fun lady. And I could see how she became who she was. She also, like my mom, is quite an artist. She started at the age of 12 and she was sent to different boarding schools in the North and South to obtain a good education. And I read a story about her and how... She found a little dead bird, a robin, while she was away at boarding school, and she gets her classmates and teachers and everyone to have a burial service for the little robin. 
Oh, that's so sweet. She, yes, loved her art classes. It was her favorite subject. She loved to paint and draw and sculpt. And she did these things for the rest of her life. And she was also pretty talented at it. She loved to hand paint dinner plates, which was very popular in those times. And she even painted some oil portraits. That's awesome. Juliet also liked to socialize with her classmates. And she went to dancing schools, which basically meant that you took dance classes. And she learned all the dances that were in vogue. And then she attended balls and was able to use all her dancing skills. I also read that she went trout fishing in a nearby stream one evening, which doesn't sound that different from what she liked to do. But on this occasion, it was after a formal dinner party while dressed in full evening clothes with her friend, Rudyard Kipling. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that nuts? So you could just see them thinking, this is such a lark. Yeah. When you have a ball at 6.30, but you have to be ready to catch trout at 9.30, you know, <laughs> you do what you got to do. Yes, I'm sure she got home and her mother was furious with her muddied hems of her beautiful <laughs> ball gown. But I was like, that's it? That's all the story of your friendship with Rudyard Kipling? I need to hear more. Right. So we need to find some more to that story. Soon Juliet fell in love with a handsome young man named William McKay Lowe. He was the brother of a friend from boarding school. He was the son of wealthy British businessman Andrew Lowe, who had a house in Savannah, although they spent much of their time in England. Her parents worried that Willie Lowe, he didn't work for a living or have any serious interests. However, when Willie Lowe then inherited a fortune after his father's death, they didn't stand in Juliet's way. Like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> well, I guess he at least can take care of you, so right. go ahead. She marries William Lowe on December 21st, 1886 in their family home, the house that is now known as the Juliet Gordon Lowe birthplace. And at Juliet's wedding, the guests threw rice at the newlyweds, which was definitely a good luck tradition at the time. This happened a lot, the rice throwing. I guess eventually they figured out that this was really bad for wildlife to come along and eat all this rice. Right. That's what I've heard. But unfortunately, a grain of rice went right into her ear canal. Oh my gosh. Which, I mean, what how many chances? times did that happen? I have no idea. Right. And because of the frequent illnesses that she had as a child, she had already lost quite a bit of her hearing. So when this grain of rice gets in her ear, the operation to remove the rice damaged her hearing even more. I think they punctured her eardrum. Oh my goodness. And so for the rest of her life, Juliet Lowe was completely deaf in one ear and nearly deaf in the other ear. I had no idea. And I had no idea that a rice could be so, like, devastating. Like, 
That's just crazy. It's... <laughs> the rice, the rice could be so devastating. Like it's like crazy to think. Just like it happened to like shoot this rice like perfectly in her ear. Poor thing. I had no idea that rice could be just devastating. <laughs> I didn't. Like who would have thought that rice was so scary? Oh, now we know why they got rid of that tradition. Yeah, I'm glad that that tradition is over. So after marrying, the couple moved to England and became associated with aristocratic families of Britain. Juliet became a popular hostess among her husband's society friends in England and Scotland. Her life was filled with hunting parties, society dances, and royal court visits. And although some of her married life was spent in England, Juliet returned often to the United States to connect with friends and family. These visits gave her support and comfort as she struggled with an increasingly unhappy marriage. Juliet and William had no children and spent much of their time apart. In 1902, William Lowe left Juliet for another woman. Their divorce proceedings were underway when William Lowe suddenly died in 1905. So Juliet discovers that William left most of his estate to his mistress. Boo. But Juliet Gordon Lowe wasn't going to take that line down and successfully contested the will and won a large settlement, including William's property in Georgia. Wow. I mean... What a loser. You start that off and you think, oh, how fun. And they are associating with all these society people in England and Scotland. No, she she should have taken that grain of rice as a bad omen. It all went downhill <laughs> from the grain of rice. It all went straight down the tubes. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> and she was unhappy. And then to find that her husband was seeing another woman while she was in the U.S. and then he leaves her. It's just, ugh. Yeah, that's sad. But then he just drops dead, which, I mean... Rude. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she told him, like, drop dead or go straight to hell. (laughs) He did. He's like, okay. Okay, going. I'm going now. I mean, that's not funny. (laughs) I mean, that's not funny, right? That's not funny. This is very serious. Go straight to him. After all of this, she really just felt sad. I mean, she had, I'm sure, like some depression and sadness. And and she wondered if marriage and motherhood weren't her purpose in life, then what was? And on a quest for meaning, she turned to family and friends, to her artwork, and also to adventure. And she had some great adventures traveling to faraway places where she climbed the Great Pyramid in Egypt and rode elephants in India. So she turned that right around and was like, what can I do to find out what I want to do with my life? She's like, I am a strong, independent woman and I don't need no man. That's what she did. I'm going to live my best life without you. And I love it. So then after she returns to London in 1911, a meeting with Robert Baden-Powell changes the course of her life.
probably had never heard of Baden-Powell before, but he had recently created the Boy Scouts, and he was interested in setting up a similar organization for girls. Like Juliet, Baden-Powell enjoyed sculpting and nature and the outdoors and the company of young people. They had plenty to talk about. Baden-Powell suggested that Juliet work with the girl guides in England and Scotland, the sister group to Boy Scouts there, which was first organized by his sister Agnes in 1910. She jumped right in, starting girl guide troops in London and rural Scotland. Then in 1912, Juliet sailed home to Savannah from England, determined to bring girl guides to the United States. Arriving at her family home, the Juliet Gordon Lowe birthplace, she immediately telephoned her cousin, school principal, Nina Pape, and said, I've got something for the girls of Savannah and all of America and all the world and we're going to start it tonight. Yes, not wasting any time. (laughs) I'm home now and we are changing the world. Again, I just, I love her like, I have an idea. And she just goes all in. I love it. Yes, so me. I love ideas. I love doing something new and we're starting now and we're doing it. So the first official meeting was held at the home of Louisa Porter in Savannah, where a group of girls from Nina Pape's school gathered with the newly appointed board members. They recited the promise and law and learned to tie knots before walking across the street to view the future site of their new headquarters in the carriage house of the Lafayette Square house Juliet Gordon Lowe inherited from her husband. (laughs) You go, girl. Then each troop was divided into smaller units of girls called patrols. Each patrol was named after a flower, and they met on different days of the week. The girls learned a wide variety of skills, including map reading, first aid, cooking, and knot tying. Lowe adopted the British Girls' Guide system of awarding badges to girls who came proficient in skills. From that first gathering of a small troop of 18 girls, Juliet broke the conventions of the time, reaching across class, cultural, and ethnic boundaries to ensure all little girls had a place to develop their leadership skills, advocate for themselves and others, and turn their ambitions into reality. Using her innate talent for fundraising and public relations, combined with her vast network of friends and supporters, she led Girl Scouts with passion and determination, ensuring it was and always would be an experience that was girl-led. In 1913, a year after the Girl Guides began in America, it underwent significant changes. Its membership expanded to other states, requiring the organization to create a national headquarters in Washington, D.C. The headquarters were moved to New York City in 1916. That year, the organization also changed its name to Girl Scouts, and the first American Girl Scout handbook, How Girls Can Help Their Country, was published. Lowe had adapted the handbook from the British Girl Guides handbook, How Girls Can Help to Build Up the Empire, which was written by Agnes Baden-Powell, Baden-Powell's sister. She was also known to exaggerate her deafness when she pretended not to hear friends who tried to beg off commitments to work for the Girl Scouts. (laughs) 
She's like, I selective hearing. <laughs> what? What? I I didn't hear anything. She just walks off. Oh, you're giving. You'll be there for the charity event. Thank you. Bye bye. Oh, great! Bye-bye. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> when attending a fashionable luncheon, she would trim her hat with carrots and parsley, exclaiming to guests, "Oh, is my trimming sad? I can't afford to have this hat done over." I have to save all my money for the Girl Scouts. You know about the Girl Scouts, don't you? <laughs> she is a hoot. She's so cute. She's a character. I love it. Throughout the course of World War I, Lowe traveled between America and Britain, championing the Girl Scouts and Girl Guides, supporting Belgium refugees in the UK, and raising funds for British soldiers and their families. She also worked with the American Red Cross and other U.S. organizations to involve Girl Scouts in the war effort. Girls rolled bandages, planted gardens, canned, and sold war bonds. After the war ended in 1918, Lowe returned to England to continue her work with the Girl Guides and to revive their connection with the American Girl Scouts. Olave Baden-Powell spearheaded an international council of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts in 1919. Lowe was also in London at the time and acted as the American representative on the council. Its aim was to expand the work of the girls' organizations throughout the world. During the 1920s, this international council of Girl Guides created troops in many parts of the globe, including South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, in China. For her extensive and continued work for the Girl Guides, Lowe was awarded the organization's Silver Fish by Olave Baden-Powell in 1919, its highest honor. Lowe was one of the few Americans to have received this award. The following year, Lowe stepped down as president of the Girl Scouts of America and focused more of her attention on promoting the organization internationally. Whenever there was a question about what to do next, Juliet said, ask the girls. It was the girls themselves who decided they wanted to be called scouts in America instead of guides. The name was officially changed to Girl Scouts in the United States in 1913. Juliet Gordon Lowe worked tirelessly to grow the new organization and for many years used her own money to pay expenses, even selling her valuable pearl necklace when she was short of funds. She loved the girls and her work for them. She loved watching them grow, discover, and learn. Juliet loved to tell stories. She wrote many stories herself, and girls encouraged her to tell ghost stories around the campfire. Again, just so much fun. So cute. Juliet also had a tea party after every Girl Scout meeting. (laughs) Which I'm sure the girls love. The organization established Lowe's birthday October 31st as Girl Scouts Founders Day in 1920. The first Girl Scout troops were launched outside the United States in China, Syria, and Mexico. Additionally, one of the earliest Native American Girl Scout troops formed on the Onondaga Reservation in New York State in 1921, and Mexican American girls formed a Girl Scout troop in Houston, Texas in 1922. Lone troops on foreign soil, later called USA Girl Scouts Overseas, registered its first Girl Scout troop in Shanghai, China, with 18 girls in 1925. In the early 1920s, Juliet Gordon Lowe was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had several surgeries and treatments, 
including the ingestion of lead, to try and cure her disease. Yeah, we thought chemotherapy was bad, right? Yeah, they just really, I'm sure, didn't have very many options back then. Yeah, trying anything to kill the cancer. But her treatments did not work. Despite her poor and declining health, Lowe kept up a relentless schedule to promote and support the work of the Girl Scouts. On January 17, 1927, she passed at her home in Savannah, Georgia, after her long and private struggle with breast cancer. 200 girls came to honor her and attend her funeral. She was then buried in Savannah's Laurel Grove Cemetery, wearing her Girl Scout uniform. Oh, she was buried in her Girl Scout uniform. That's so sweet. Isn't that the saddest sweet thing and all these little girls going to her funeral? It's truly her legacy, and I love that. Yeah. After her death, Juliet's friends honored her by establishing the Juliet Lowe World Friendship Fund, which powers international projects for Girl Scouts and Girl Guides around the world. I also wondered, with her nickname being Daisy, if that also had to do with her love of the outdoors and then how each of the the little troops, you know, had... They were all named after a flower. Had flower names. That is probably true. I didn't think of that. Since that time, leaders and girls all over the world have worked to grow the Girl Scout movement and ensure that it lives up to the promise of being a community that welcomes all girls to have fun and reach their full potential. Her home was designated as a registered National Historic Landmark in 1965. It's owned and operated by Girl Scouts of the USA. Visitors, including Girl Scout troops of all ages, can trace the arc of Juliet Gordon, but most importantly, the vision of Juliet Gordon Lowe comes to life in every Girl Scout and Girl Scout alum who speaks up for what they believe in, leaves the world better than they found it, and blazes a trail of their very own. Throughout the Great Depression, Girl Scouts participated in relief efforts by collecting clothing and food for those in need. Then in the 1940s, during World War II, Girl Scout troops operated bicycle courier services, ran farm aid projects, collected fat and scrap metal, and grew victory gardens as well as sponsored defense institutes that taught women survival skills and techniques for comforting children during air raids. Japanese-American girls confined to internment camps in Utah and California also established troops. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's awful that they were in internment camps, but they still tried to, I guess, provide a little bit of comfort there for them. Yeah. In the 1950s, Girl Scouts responded to the Korean War by assembling kits for Korea, pouches of items needed by Korean citizens. They also continued to push for inclusiveness and equality, with Ebony Magazine reporting in 1952 that even in the South, Scouts were making slow and steady progress towards surmounting the racial barriers of the region. Love it. In the 1960s, Girl Scouts held speak-out conferences around the country to lend their voices to fight for racial equality. 
launched the Action 70 Project to help overcome prejudice and build better relationships between people. And they even keep going up to now. As you know, they sell, they sell really good cookies. <laughs> if you haven't heard. They have all the good cookies. All sorts of good cookies for their fundraisers. Juliet Gordon Lowe is remembered today with so many things, camps, elementary schools, and scholarships in her honor. She has a three cent postage stamp, <laughs> a World War II battleship, 1944, the United States Liberty ship named the SS Juliet Lowe, hole number 2446. Now, there's something that a lot of people cannot say is that they right. have a ship named after them. A warship. Well, you know, she was a force. She was a force to be reckoned with. And she I, was. I find that that's, you know, maybe that's appropriate. I would like to know how her warship did in the battles. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a bust of her displayed in the Georgia State Capitol. And numerous biographies and even an opera about her life. Even an opera? We need to go see her opera. I know. And in 1983, President Ronald Reagan signs a bill into law naming a new federal building complex in Savannah in honor of Juliet Gordon Lowe, only the second such structure in the United States named after a woman. In 2005, Juliet Gordon Lowe is memorialized in the Points of Light Monument in Washington, D.C., the only national monument paying tribute to individuals who selflessly champion causes to help others realize a better America. In 2012, 85 years after her death, Juliet was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her services to the nation by President Obama. So many wonderful tributes to her. And I just, I just found her life really fascinating and of course cut tragically short, but how much good did she do in those short amount of years? Yeah, she truly was kind of a champion for those that couldn't necessarily be a champion for themselves uh, or taught them how to be a champion for themselves, to speak up for themselves and to empower girls and women to learn new skills. And I think that's just really important, especially for the time. To look outside of themselves to reach out through the boundaries of you know race and religion and and gender yes and gender and that girls can go out and camp and ride horses and do all of these outdoor activities and fun and fishing and all of the things that maybe society had told young girls that they couldn't do up to this time and she made it fun and not only that but they they did so much good so much service during wars and anyway just I just thought wow she literally touched the life of millions and millions of young girls that grew up to be women that then grew up to do great things for other women and other girls and and men and boys and I just really loved her. And I, you know, at first I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, the founder of the Girl Scouts, like, all right, you know, like, yeah, we can go right. see her house. Like, I but guess that's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. But just like a lot of our stories, like, 
you can't just, you never can judge just a person by their name or their color, their anything. Their gravestone. Or their gravestone. You have to find what lies beneath. Speaking of her grave, we found it there in her family plot in Laurel Grove. And it's quite simple. It's a cross with a circle in the cross, like an Irish cross, if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. Only not quite as decorative or Celtic looking as sometimes Irish crosses are, but it has the cross with the circle through the cross part. And it was probably about four foot tall. And then it also has one of those planters that comes out in front of it, which was really popular in that era. And on the cross, it says founder of Girl Scouts of the United States. And as I said, she was buried in her Girl Scout uniform but I found that she was buried with a note in her pocket stating, you are not only the first Girl Scout, but the best Girl Scout of them all. Oh, that's really tender. It is tender. So tender. And her tombstone reads, now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then, to me, the very sweetest thing about visiting her grave was that in that little planter area that comes out of the front of her grave, and back in the day, you know, they probably had little pansies and cute little flowers, you know, that that would be planted in there that helped decorate and make the grave beautiful. I hope they planted daisies in there. Aw, daisies! I love that! But now, it is filled with rocks. And they're all not just regular rocks. They are little tokens left by little curls from all over the world. Painted rocks with their troop numbers on them. They say love troop number, you know, 1293. Or there'd be a photo of their troop um, put, you know, under a little rock and seashells and little painted shells and a tiny small little bracelet just small darling little things that little girls would leave to a cherished leader and it was all really touching oh that is very touching like I'm getting a little teary (laughs) I know me too and so for a woman that maybe society would think like well You didn't have a husband. You didn't have a bunch of children. But, I mean, how many of us can say that we will touch the lives of millions of children in our lifetime? I was thinking that earlier. Like, oh, she didn't think, you know, motherhood was her calling. But it was almost like motherhood was exactly her calling. And in order to do that, though, she, you know, she had to be able to give all of herself so much. And it (laughs) just wasn't focused on her you know, biological children. Yes. So she made the world her children. Yes. And I would definitely argue that motherhood was exactly her calling mm-hmm. <laughs> in just yes. a more unique and special way, just in a different way. So true. And I think that as women, that we we can all do that as well. I've had many strong women in my life that have mothered me that aren't my own mother and I 
I was lucky enough to be born to one of the best mothers ever, I would say. Yes, I agree. She's the best. You know, we can in turn, as women, take other people and other children under our wing. And you know me, I love adopting people as my own kids and I was going to say, you know, most of my friends and and of Taylor's friends (laughs) and I'm sure the boys' friends all end up calling you Mama Scott, Uh even my friends that are, you know, in their 30s and you met later in life. It's like, oh, that's Mama Scott. And that's just how it is. I don't know. I just, I think that that's something that we each can do. And sometimes we're not blessed with children um, in this life or that's, that's not our goal, but we can still make such a difference in the life of many, many people throughout our lives and show that same kind of love and support. Yeah, again, I went from kind of like, yeah, this will be interesting to find out more about her to just like, oh, I just love this lady so much. You can tell that she is still beloved, you know, even almost a hundred years later, (laughs) you know, which is pretty incredible. Yes. Think that to me was what was so touching is that people still went to that place to thank her, to leave these little tokens, these adorable little children painted rocks, you know, with little hearts and bright, funky colors all together and um, put on her grave to let her know that they had that appreciation and reverence for her and that just really touched me thank you for being here with me today and for all you do for our podcast i was really glad to be part of this episode i learned so much and i mean i always learn a lot you know doing this but this one i i just felt like i really can relate to her and you know in our in our family as well and i just really enjoyed it so thank you so much for having me Somehow, you knew that Juliet was happy with her life and the legacy that she left behind. She may not have had children of her own, but she had all of the girls in the world. They were all hers. Thousands and thousands of lives she touched for good. And just like the very first troop in 1912, Girl Scouts connect with their communities, serve others, get outdoors, and challenge themselves. They find ways to make the world a better place, just like Juliet. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.